have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Chapter 5 began an extended uh, discussion on sexual relationships. Chapter 7 deals with marriage. And so before we begin, I want to say right from the beginning that uh, nothing that is being said this morning is directed towards you. I'm not talking about you. I'm not using as this my opportunity to get in a dig or some kind of weird thing like that. Here at Liberty Missionary Baptist, we go through books of the Bible. And so uh, chapter 7 comes right after chapter 6, and it's right before chapter 8. So uh, what I'm honestly trying to do is just convey what chapter 7 teaches us. This is a big subject, and it's a long chapter, so let's get right into it. I'm going to begin chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. It says, about the things you wrote, it is good for a man not to have relations with a woman. But because of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman should have her own husband. So let's just stop right there. Chapter 7, verse 1, it says, now in response to the matters that you wrote about. And so up to this point, uh, Paul has been addressing issues and matters that he has become aware of. But beginning here, chapter 7, all the way to the end of the letter, Paul will begin to answer their questions. And so we can see here that they have written to him with a number of matters that they're concerned about. And so he's begun, going to begin to move through those. But we don't have the actual questions. All we have is his response. So it's kind of like when you're listening to someone else talk on the telephone. You're only getting one side of the conversation, and so we are at, at a loss a little bit there, but we should be able to see basically what's happening. Um, it is very clear that throughout this chapter, there's an underlying question about abstaining from sex. We see this right here in the very beginning. It's, it's a quote. It says, about the things you wrote, it is good for a man not to have relations with a woman. So this is something that they have written to him. And it gives us every impression that this is coming from a desire to be pure, as if, uh, as if uh, a sexual relationship is, is something that is bad. But Paul is going to say that uh, if it's not your gift, then this is going to have the opposite effect. Instead of being pure, this is going to possibly lead to sexual immorality. You see there in verse 2, it says, So now in response to the matters that you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have relations with a woman. He says, but because sexual immorality is so common. So what does he mean there? What does that mean? The King James Version has to avoid fornication. The English Standard Version says, because of the temptation to sexual immorality. So in other words, now in response to this matter you wrote about, Here's the quote. It is good for a man not to have relations with a woman. Well, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman should have her own husband. So we'll continue reading, verse 3. A husband should, should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise a wife to her husband. A wife does not have authority over her own body, 
what her husband does. Equally, a husband does not have authority over his own body, but his wife does. Do not deprive one another except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again. Otherwise, Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all people were just like me, but each one has his own gift from God. One this and another that. I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they, if they remain as I am. But if they do not have self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with desire. So as we look at this letter here, we, we think about the things that we do know. We know something about ancient Corinth. We know something about the Roman Empire. We, we have an idea of uh, philosophy that was uh, prevalent in the day and some of the religious practices. So we, we have some information. But what do we know about these people that were coming to this church? What did they look like? What, what was going on with them? Who, who were they? What do we actually know? Well, from chapter 1, we do know that the vast majority of these people came from humble backgrounds. In chapter 1, verse 26, is going to say that not many of you are wise from a world's perspective. Not many of you are powerful. Not many of you are of noble birth. Now, that means that some of them are, but most of them are not. Most of the people in this church come from humble backgrounds. Um, in our reading this morning, we're going to find out in chapter 7 that uh, some of them are slaves. And so some of the people in the church are slaves and some are not. We must keep these things in mind because we know that one of the biggest problems this church was having was about divisions. We're going to also find out in chapter 7 that some of these people were Jewish. Some were Jewish and some were not. And we're also going to find out and we also know that many, if not Almost all of them were Gentiles. Gentiles with a background, uh, a religious background, in idolatry. And over the years here, we've talked about what idolatry is, what that looks like, the things that were involved in, in worship of idols. And so this is the background of this church. In the next chapter, in chapter 8, verse 7, Paul is talking about how not everybody has a basic knowledge of God. Now, if you're Jewish, you do. But if you're a Gentile who's been raised in idolatry, you have this polytheistic idea about God and the gods and their relationship to fertility and the worship and the practices and this, this back and forth between what's going on up there and down here and, and the sexual immorality that was just prevalent. So when somebody becomes a Christian, they're walking into this situation with that kind of a background. Gentiles who have a religious background in idolatry. In chapter 8, he says, not everybody has this knowledge. The Jewish people would, but most would not. In chapter, two, in chapter 12, verse 2, it says, when you were pagans. And so much of what they know, much of what they have been raised to believe has to be dismantled and abandoned. And that is no short order. You're basically saying everything that your parents have been teaching you is wrong. What your favorite uncle has taught you is wrong. What your uh, teachers that you look up to has been wrong. You know, nobody wants to be told that your, what your dad thinks is wrong. 
And so this is why, it's one of the biggest reasons why the culture that they were living in was having such an impact upon them, just like it does on us. We can see Greek culture affecting and influencing their behavior, the things they were doing, the things they weren't doing. And because that's true, it was affecting how they interpret Scripture. And so when they look at the Bible and they're reading it, they don't see that they're interpreting it wrong because they've got the wrong pair of glasses on. They put the world on. And so they're seeing things from the world's perspective. And so when they look at the Bible from those glasses, they're going to be interpreting it wrong. And so this is what we see occurring here. You know, from, from chapter 6 that we studied two weeks ago, it's, it's very clear that we don't know how many people, but we can see that within the church there were people who were, who were committing sexual immorality. They were involved in sexually immoral conduct. And to whatever degree, to some degree, this was not being disapproved of. What has to happen in order for that to occur? I mean, if there's any question about this, why does Paul have to tell them that having sex with a prostitute is wrong? Why, why is Paul having to tell us that? Uh, look at chapter 6, verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are the members of Christ? So should I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Absolutely not. What's, what's going on? How could, how could people in a church be justifying this behavior in some way? How, could, how does that happen? This is why it's very important for us to know our audience, to know who these people are, what was going on in this church at this particular time, and then we figure out how it's applicable to us. Because we all know that our culture influences how we think. And if the world's getting into the way we see things, then it's going to get into the way that we understand the Bible and our Christian faith. It's uh, the, way, the way the world defines marriage, uh, living together, kicking the tires before you buy the car, this kind of a thing. This is prevalent. Uh, a woman has a right to her own body, so if she has, to, wants to, has an unwanted pregnancy, she has the right to make those decisions. And so this is our culture, and it affects the way Christians think. And so we can see this happening to them just like we can see it happening to us. And so uh, we do know that sexual immorality was a big part of the fertility cults. We know that. We know that uh, they were very interested in the relationships of the gods. And they felt like the things they were doing had a direct impact on the earth. And they thought that the things that they were doing sexually and in their religious practices that involved sexual immorality were familiar with, you know, the temple to Aphrodite and the temple to Apollos that was up there a minute ago and, and others. Uh, they believed that the relationships, the sexual relationships with the gods and with people interacted with each other and it affected things. It affected uh, military campaigns, finances, livestock, you know, fertility. And so it was a big part of every facet of life. And so we know that this was the, the, the rule of the day. And to an uncertain extent, this coincided with Greek philosophy. We know that Greek philosophy had a, a low view of the body. They thought the body was a tomb. And they had a very high view of the soul. And so this was approached from a couple of different angles. One was to indulge the desires of the body to just give in to it, indulge. 
And this created the backdrop for us for chapter 6. We remember in chapter 6 there was the little slogans of the day. In verse 12 it said, you know, everything is permissible for me. So you can see, we are, we are free in Christ. Everything is permissible for me. And so you see that, that indulging. In the next verse it says that food is for the stomach and stomach is for the food. And so, of course, all of this brought instruction. Paul had to address this. And so he began to draw the distinctions between marriage, what constitutes marriage biblically, not Hamilton County, but what constitutes marriage biblically and how that is distinguished from sexual immorality. The other approach was to deprive the desires of the flesh. And of course, this is going to create the backdrop as we've already seen for chapter 7. It is good for a man not to have relations with a woman. And so the idea there is to deprive. And for some, to deprive yourself in these ways is somehow noble and pure and better than giving in to the desires of the flesh. And so this is why there's this underlying theme in chapter 7 about abstaining from sex. Now, there's confusion here. So some of the factors, I put them up here on the screen, these are some, some factors that uh, would be involved in, in why they are coming up with these kind of conclusions. And it doesn't have to be sinister. It can be really bad. It can be just the worst parts of culture in, infiltrating. But it could be something simple as a, a married couple wants to be close to God. They want to live for God. And they're getting mixed signals about all kinds of things. So they're thinking, well, to abstain from sex and just concentrate on our, on our spiritual walk with you is probably the right way. And one spouse says, okay, that's a good idea. And the other one says, that is not a good idea, honey. And so this is the conflicts. And so these are some of the factors. We know that there was widespread sexual immorality uh, in the culture. Um, in, our, in our society, uh, everybody's living together. Nobody's married. And they don't get married for a variety of reasons, but they're not married. They just live together. Someone has a baby, but you don't want to have a baby. You just abort it. All kinds of crazy definitions of what marriage is in our society. Well, in the first century, Corinth was very bad. It had a bad reputation. And we've talked about from multiple ancient sources that it had a reputation. So the, the society itself was living in lots of different kind of arrangements that were bad. Same-sex type stuff and everything else. And so uh, this is one reason. Another reason is the fertility cults. And we've already talked about that and how there's this... Uh, it's, it's a prevalent part of their religious practice. Maybe that helps us to understand why people are seeing prostitutes. There's this common, uh, this common concept of depriving the physical desires of the body. And Paul was celibate. And he lived in Corinth for 18 months before he moved on. So for, for 18 months... Uh, he never went out on a date, you know. Now, he was in the Sanhedrin, and you had to be married to be in the Sanhedrin. And so for Paul to be celibate at this point gives us every indication that his wife has passed away. We don't know that for sure, but uh, it's really the only conclusion. And so Paul is alone now, and he has chosen not to remarry. And so the, the, the people in Corinth that are Christians are looking up to Paul, and they're trying to follow his lead, and 
Paul thinks it's best not to remarry. So maybe we shouldn't be married. Should we divorce? Should we not have sex anymore? What? There's a lot of confusion. And so in our text, we're going to see that some of the spouses are abstaining. And this is part of the reasons that Paul is addressing this in this chapter. But what, uh, just uh, if you look at verse 5, do not deprive one another sexually. So we can see that abstinence is even being practiced in marital relationships. But Paul's going to say that not everyone has the, has the gift of celibacy. And to force this upon yourself is probably just going to result in sexual immorality. So don't do that. Don't do that unless, don't deprive each other unless you both agree. Unless you both agree to come together for a time of prayer. And uh, the verse continues that this is to be temporary. It's not to be a permanent situation. It's to be temporary. It's kind of like a fast. So uh, couples can, can set all kinds of things aside to devote themselves uh, to whatever's going on in your life that you need to give something attention in prayer. So this is what's happening. Now, Paul has identified, and he will, uh, actually in verse 7 there, he identifies uh, both marriage and celibacy as a gift from God. Each has his own gift from God. That's what it says there in verse 7. And that's why he says that the unmarried and the widows should remain as I am if they are able. And so the categories so far in chapter 7 are people who are celibate, people who are married, people who are widows. We know what widows are. And then the unmarried. Well, the unmarried is going to be distinguished from virgins in verse 25. And so this is talking about people who used to be in sexual relationships but are not anymore. So the unmarried would be those who have been divorced. So these are the categories as we move forward. Um, we're going to continue reading. Whoops. Continue. Let's see. Don't pay any attention to the slides. All right. So uh, chapter 7, we're going to continue reading in verse 10. That's where we're at. Verse 10. Now I command the married, not I, but the Lord, a wife is not to leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to leave his wife. But to the rest I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has an unbelieving wife and she is willing to live with him, he must not leave her. Also, if any woman has an unbelieving husband and he is willing to live with her, she must not leave her husband. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the Christian husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, and now they are holy. Now, what's happened here in verse 10 is something interesting, is that uh, you see here in verse 10 where Paul says, I command the married, not I, but the Lord. And so what Paul is going to be doing is he's going to be jumping back and forth between things that Jesus taught on this subject and things that he is teaching that are additional, that supplement the things that Jesus has already said. And he's going to tell us that the things that he's saying is under apostolic authority and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So let's look at some of the examples as we move through the chapter there in verse 10. I command the married, not I, but the Lord. So he's referring back to something Jesus taught. Verse 12, but I, not the Lord, say this. 
That doesn't mean he's disagreeing, it just means that he's giving us additional information. Verse 17, this is what I command in all of the churches. So this is that apostolic authority. And then in verse 25, he says, about virgins, I have no command from the Lord. In other words, I don't remember anything that Jesus actually said that would address this. But I do give an opinion as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. And then he summarizes this in verse 40, that even though he is giving his opinions, he has his own feelings about this as a celibate, what he thinks he's, what he's saying is he knows is under the direction of the Holy Spirit. In my opinion, and I think that I also have the Spirit of God. Well, the things that Paul is referring back to that Jesus taught are on the subject of divorce. That's the subject matter that kept coming up during the Lord's ministry. And uh, there's about five go-to passages in the Bible that deal with this subject specifically. The first one is in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. The second one is in Deuteronomy 24. And then in the New Testament, there's uh, Matthew 5, which is part of the Sermon on the Mount. And then it is expanded and, and given much more detail in chapter 19 of Matthew. And then it's, it's uh, paralleled in uh, Mark 10. It's paralleled in Luke 16. And then the fifth passage would be 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And so it's very important for us to know the, the foundation that's being established here that is being referred to uh, by Jesus and now again by Paul. And so let's take just a few minutes to do that. I'm going to encourage you to keep your finger where you're at in the Bible and to move back to the left to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. I've got them up here on the screen for you. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. And I've always been so thankful that we got this because it's almost like having an entire sermon by Jesus. But he just says some, he just like hits him with some zingers, you know? And so it's kind of like, is that really all he said about this? So I don't know if there's even more said than we have recorded. Um, but chapter 5, beginning in verse 31, here's the two verses that he says something about this subject. It was, it's also been said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. What is he talking about? And he says, but I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in the case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And then we'll fast forward. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 19, because in, in Matthew 19, he's going to discuss this in greater detail. Explain what he was talking about. We can be sure that this was discussed several times in between, especially with some of the things that's happened. But by the time we come to Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is in Perea. And so he's on the east side of the Jordan River. This is a, a territory that is ruled by Herod Antipas. And uh, he is passing through Perea on his way back to Jerusalem. And this is right before his final week in Jerusalem where he's going to be crucified. So this is at the end of his ministry. So at the beginning in chapter 5, this is towards the beginning with the Sermon on the Mount. And here this subject is being bookended again right towards the very end. 
And so Jesus is in Perea, and like I said, this is an area that was ruled by Herod Antipas, and we know that he was the one who put John the Baptist to death. And John the Baptist was put to death because he condemned Herod's divorce of his wife. Herod divorced his wife, and he married his half-brother Philip's wife, Herodias. And so that relationship was, was within the family, and so that's forbidden in, in Leviticus, but also because he divorced his wife to marry her. And this is what cost John the Baptist his life. And so Jesus is in Perea. There's a great crowd around him. And the Pharisees are coming up to him with this question. And it's not because they're just interested in the truth. It's because they're trying to trap him. And this is because in that day, uh, the Jewish people were kind of divided on the subject of divorce. Some people believed that you would only divorce for sexual immorality. But there was a whole other teaching that you could divorce your wife for just about any reason at all. And whatever stance Jesus would take on this, he's going to lose half of his audience. And if he takes a hard stance, which they're pretty sure he's going to do, he runs the risk of insulting Herod. So it's a trap. Chapter 19, verse 1, it says in Matthew, When Jesus had finished this instruction, he departed from Galilee and he went to the region of Judea across the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Some Pharisees approached him to test him and they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? Well, Jesus is going to refer back to that first uh, passage on this subject, Genesis chapters 1 and 2. He's going to take us back there. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? Haven't you read that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female? For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, man must not separate. And so Jesus has referred them back to the beginning, to God's purpose in marriage, the heart behind marriage. And that it is supposed to be permanent. And this is when they said, oh, well, then in verse 7, he says, well, then why did Moses command us to give divorce papers and to send her away? Well, what are they referring to? This is, we can see this being referred to in the Sermon on the Mount too, can't we? Well, he's referring back to Deuteronomy chapter 24. The first four verses of chapter 24, uh, men were giving away their wives in divorces. They're giving them divorce certificates and sending them away. And to justify what they were doing, they were doing this on the grounds of some indecency. That's the word. Something improper. It was something that was shameful. Something had happened that was shameful that was less than adultery. And they were divorcing their wives for it. The actual word means a matter of nakedness. And so it is an exposure that is very shameful in some fashion. Now, in the best sense, these guys were divorcing their wives uh, to avoid the death penalty. Um, but in the worst, they were divorcing their wives for whatever reason they wanted. And we see that their question here, when they, tra they tra try to trap Jesus, it says, well, then why did Moses command us? Well, he didn't command them at all. 
Jesus or Moses did not institute divorce or authorize divorce. He was acknowledging the presence of divorce in Israel because of the hardness of their heart. These people had made up their minds regardless of what marriage was supposed to be. And so Jesus makes it very clear in Matthew. He says, look, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And this word for sexual immorality is the same word that's used in Matthew chapter 5. It's the word pornea. And it is a word that covers a wide range of sexual sins. So uh, we're back in 1 Corinthians now. If you want to turn back, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, the sexual immorality we know uh, can simply be defined as any kind of sexual relationship, whatever you can think of, any kind that is outside of the boundaries of marriage, biblical marriage. That's sexual immorality. And when we were studying church discipline in chapter 5, there was a list of sins, and one of the sins was sexual immorality. That same list was used again in chapter 6 when he was dealing with a problem there in the church. And he lists sexual immorality again, but he, he breaks it down into two different groups of adultery and homosexuality. So sexual immorality is a word that covers a wide spectrum of sinful behaviors. And so you can imagine being married to someone who's involved in something. They're doing something. And we have to remember that Jesus says that when you look lustfully at a woman, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. That's sexual immorality. It's quite a wide range of things. Think of some of the crazy things that guys do. There are many things that we can do that's not actually having sex with somebody. That's just stinking wrong. Well, there's the exception clause, ladies. There it is. But we want to make sure that we understand and share God's heart about this. Because God hates divorce. And He always desires reconciliation. So instead of thinking of this as an exception clause, we must see God as allowing it under certain circumstances. Because married people, in verse 10 are supposed to stay together. A wife is not to leave her husband. A husband is not to leave her. You're supposed to stay together. In verse 11 it says, but if, if they do leave, someone leaves. If you do separate, you're supposed to remain unmarried or be reconciled. So we can see here that even though sexual immorality is the only exception or it's the only grounds for divorce, that does not mean that someone has to live in an unbearable situation. You can maybe think of some situations where people are married and life has just become so unbearable. Now, I'm not talking about cooking or he's got stinky feet. If something, has, if something is unbearable, something unbelievable, you may have to separate. But if you do, you're not to remarry. You're supposed to stay single with the heart and goal of reconciling. And we all know that when people separate, they grow apart. 
have to stay together under one roof to grow together. So we only separate if there's no other options. If it's unbearable. Why does God say this? He says it because God desires reconciliation. He, recon he desires reconciliation, of course, in that situation, but even in the cases of sexual immorality. Now, I've already said that Genesis chapters 1 and 2, God made man and woman. They're to be, uh, become one flesh, and, and uh, what God has joined together, man is not supposed to separate. That's Genesis chapter 1. From the very beginning, we see that God establishes marriage. He loves marriage. Marriage is good. It's not supposed to end as far as God's concerned. It's supposed to stay. In, in Deuteronomy chapter 24, the problem is, is that guys were divorcing their wives and then she would marry some other guy and he would divorce her. And he's saying the only command in that passage is that Moses says the first husband can't take her back. And guys can't remarry again after that. That was the command. And then again here in Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 19, and then here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. These are basic building blocks to help us to understand and navigate through this difficult and complicated subject. But we want to remember that the Bible from beginning to end is chock full of relationships, all kinds of sexual relationships. But there's many, many, many people who are married, people who are divorced, people who are widowed, people who are celibate, to give us examples. And we never want to forget that the Bible, from beginning to end, has this grand theme, this grand scheme of the covenant marriage between God and the nation of Israel. It is a beautiful picture that plays out throughout the Bible. And if you want to understand marriage, if you want to understand the, the attitude going into it, all you have to do is see God's unconditional love for the nation of Israel. And even in Jer Jeremiah, we know that passage where he says, okay, here's your certificate of divorce because of the hardness of your heart. Go your way. See what it gets you. But that's not the end of the story. God isn't done just because they walk away. He stays with his spouse, even though his spouse has left. We see God wooing the nation. I mean, and we know it's not the end of the story because of Daniel and Ezekiel, um, Acts 1, Romans 11, book of Revelation. God does finally bring Israel back into the marriage covenant and, re and reconciles with them. This is our example. God has given us an example. And we know that regardless of sexual immorality, God doesn't say, okay, now you've got your, your free pass to divorce your spouse. God wants you to try to work through it if you can. Now, sometimes these things are so severe, the damage is too great. Fair enough. But if you can, you have to have the right heart about it to try to make it work, to try to reconcile. We see this in the beautiful relationship between Hosea and, and his wife, Gomer. God told Hosea to marry Gomer. She was a, a rough lady. He shouldn't have, you know, not the guy, chick, or the woman he would have picked. And they married, and sure enough, she leaves him, and she goes and does her thing. And God says, Hosea, where's your wife? And he said, well, you know where she is, the one you had me marry. And he says, go get her. Hosea goes and he gets his wife. This is God's heart. Verse 15. 
But if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or sister is not bound in such cases. God has called you to peace. For you, wife, how do you know whether you will save your husband? Or you, husband, how do you know whether or not you will save your wife? This is a situation where you said that you, you stay. The Bible tells us that we're not supposed to be unequally yoked. So if you're single and you're looking for a wife, you're looking for a husband, you're not supposed to go marry somebody or even date somebody who's not a believer. Marriage begins with a single date, the very first date. Right? Anybody's, if you've ever met anybody who's married, at some point they went out on a date together. So the Bible's real clear about it that believers are only supposed to marry believers. This chapter ends by reminding us of this. But sometimes people are married and they, one of them becomes a Christian. And so now we're very much unequally yoked. This is not talking about two people who are living together and one of them becomes a Christian. That situation is very clear. What the, These two people need to separate. But in marriage, what does Paul tell us? He says, you stay together. If the unbeliever leaves, you see, look, look uh, in, verse, in verse 12, let's just read through it again. It says, but to the rest, I am not the Lord say, if any brother has an unbelieving wife and she is willing to live with him, he must not leave her. If any woman has an unbelieving husband, he is, and, she, and he is willing to live with her, she must not leave her husband. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the Christian husband. Otherwise, you're just throwing your children to the wolves. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. If the unbeliever does leave, let him go. A brother or sister is not bound in such cases, because God's called you to live in peace. For you, wife, how do you know whether or not you will save your husband by your influence? And you, husband, how do you know whether or not you will save your wife? So in this situation, you stay together. We see this is because, I've always said this several times, but you are the best thing that has ever happened to most people in this world that ever, ever have ever come into contact with you. Because you're a Christian. You have the answers. You've been redeemed. Your eyes have been opened. And the rest of the world, their eyes are so they're shut. They're deaf, dumb, and blind. And, and they, they, they don't get it. They don't see. We're not some kind of crazy cult. But the truth is, is that God opens our eyes and we see things differently now. And so when we, we're around somebody who, who doesn't understand, we're the, 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 the light and the salt and the influence. We're the ambassador for Christ. And so we're the, the absolute best. And so Paul is saying here that if you are married and you become a Christian, stay with your spouse. You're the best thing that's ever happened to them and your children. If you separate, who knows what's going to happen with him or her? Who knows what's going to happen to your children? You're, you're throwing them out there. Stay under one roof and let me work through your life and influence your lost family. That's the best way. That's what Paul's talking about here. Now, that might not be something you want to do. You know, and so you, know, you could make your spouse miserable so that he does leave or she does leave. But it's not the way. And if he does leave, not because you drove him out by insisting this thing or insisting this, or driving him crazy, 
you know, pounding, pounding on your husband's head to live like a Christian when he's not one. You know, if he wants to go fishing on Sunday morning, let him go fishing. Just keep loving him. You can make him really miserable and run him off. That's the, that's the wrong attitude. It's the exact opposite of what Paul's trying to explain here. And I will say this, you know, how do you know whether you're going to save your husband or your wife? Now, we don't save anybody. Paul's not saying that. I can't save anybody, neither can you. He's saying that, how do you know that God's not going to work through you to influence your spouse? Do you realize what he's saying there? This is a vivid illustration of a Christian's role in evangelism. How we go through life holding the fort, keeping the standards, speaking the truth in love when someone is interested, when they really want to hear, being a good influence, explaining the gospel, doing good works, regardless of whether or not God has elected them. It shows us our role, regardless of what God is, is or is not going to do. And then finally, uh, beginning of verse 17, we're going to read to verse 24. However, each one must live his life in the situation the Lord has assigned when God called him. In other words, where you were at when you got saved. That's your station in life when God called you. This is what I command in all the churches. Was anyone already circumcised when he was called? That's Jewish. He should not undo his circumcision. I'm not sure how you do that. But was anyone called while uncircumcised? He should not get circumcised. So basically what he's saying there is if, if you were a Jewish Christian and you become a Christian, if you were a Jewish and you become a Christian, undoing your circumcision basically just means not being Jewish anymore. Jesus, Paul's not saying to do that. And he's not saying that if you're a Gentile and become a Christian, now all of a sudden you've got to become Jewish or a Judaizer. So this is the back and forth there. So we can see this interplay, this relational situation that would be ongoing inside of a, a church congregation. Was anyone already circumcised, verse 18, when he was called? He should not undo his circumcision. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? He should not get uncircumcised. Circumcision does not matter, and uncircumcision does not matter. But keeping God's command does. Each person should remain in the life situation in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? So that doesn't mean that just because you called as a slave, you've got to be a slave forever. He doesn't say that. Look, he says, it should not be a concern to you. Accept the assignment, the station in life that you're in. But if you can become free, by all means, take the opportunity. For he who is called by the Lord as a slave is the Lord's freedman. So whether you are, regardless of what situation you find yourself in life, you're Jewish, you're not Jewish, you're a slave, you're not a slave, you're married to an unbeliever, regardless, you are free in Christ. But likewise, he who is called as a free man is Christ's slave. We're all free, but we're all slaves to Christ. Because we have been bought with a price. But do not become a slave to men. Brothers, each person should remain with God in whatever situation he is called. Each person should remain in the life situation in which they were called. You know, there's nothing like starting a new life in Christ and wanting to shed everything that's connected to our old ways. But sometimes it doesn't work like that. Just because you become a Christian doesn't mean that your debt is just canceled. All of your credit cards are paid off. I, got, I became a Christian. All my credit card balances are zero. Doesn't happen like that. You still got the debt. 
What happens when you become a Christian and you uh, want to tie the church, but you can't because you're so much in debt? What's God want you to do? Quit paying capital one? Say, hey, uh, you know, I can't pay you. I'm a Christian now. I've got to tithe. doesn't work like that, does it? And if you, um, you know, are in trouble, they don't just automatically let you out of jail. God is saying you stay right where you're at because growth comes through life, not by escaping it. This is why Paul tells us to remain with God. And in the remainder, verses 25 through 40, Paul introduces this final category of virgins, people who have not yet married. And he basically says them that they should marry or stay celibate regardless or depending upon their gift. But in the process, he tells us some very important things. He tells us that time is short. And to recognize that when you are married, that your time and your resources and your attention is divided. And it gets further divided, doesn't it, when you go to work? And then if you've got your hobbies. And before you know it, your, your interests, your time, your resources, and all of your attention has been broken into all of these little pieces. Paul wants us to recognize that life is short and that it is to be spent living for God regardless of whether we are married or celibate. He does talk about our calling, and he says, uh, you know, to become a celibate may come uh, early in life as a virgin, but it may come from a station in life later that you may find yourself either widowed or divorced. But at no point does Paul or God frown upon the beauty of marriage. Let's pray.